lot of times what I tell people is, if you have a really good sales organization leadership team, they are not going to let a significantly subpar manager stay for very long, right? Have that reflected in the overall culture and leadership. Because people say things like, I love this sales org, I just hate my manager. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. And they do. And I'm like, let's unpack that a little bit. Because if I really hate my manager, I probably don't like my sales org because that sales org is empowering somebody that's so detrimental to my experience to be in a position of power guiding me. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Ryan Walsh. Ryan is the founder and CEO at RepView. And in our conversation today, Ryan and I talk about how RepView is challenging the status quo when it comes to getting a sales job and trying to flip the odds to the favor of the candidate during the hiring process. So we dig into the data that RepView collects to help inform sellers during that hiring process. We'll also talk a little bit about the additional data that RepView could collect and might collect going into the future. We also get into a couple of additional topics of prime concern to sellers. One is, what is sales work going to look like within the next couple of years? And what impact will that have on the daily life of the individual seller? And then we also talk about one of my favorite topics, which is quota. I mean, does quota still have relevance in sales today? Well, you'll have to listen to find out what Ryan and I talk about there. So all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Ryan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you gave us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review, we'd really appreciate it. So thank you. All right, let's get into it. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Andy, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So you're joining us from where? Uh, I am in uh, RepView Worldwide Headquarters, which is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Chapel just, Hill? Outside of the, uh, just outside of the Raleigh-Durham area. And are you uh, like a UNC alum? I am. Uh, mm-hmm. So grew up in North Carolina, went to undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, and that was over 20 years ago, graduated um, and have lived in the area ever since. So definitely a Tar Heel. My wife went to UNC my brother went, her sister went, my brother-in-law, father. <laughs> so, yeah. So no pressure on your two kids who are you know, about four four years away from applying, at least the oldest one. So yeah. no no pressure to go to UNC? Pave your own path, my friend. Pave <laughs> okay. your own path. Whatever, you know. Maybe other other than the, the darker blue, shade of blue down the street, we might have a problem with that one. Oh, yeah. But, okay. but other, than, yeah. other than that, we're all good. <laughs> I would, as a parent, I would say if they could get into Duke, you, I'd encourage them to go. Yeah. No, I, like I said, any, I, 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 you know, I don't have any designs on what they want to do and where they want to go necessarily yeah. as long as they're happy and they're, um, you know, they're, they're excited about where they go, then I'll be excited about it too. Yeah. Great. So, well, tell us about RepView. So, what what was the what was the motivation to start RepView? What was what was happening in your world that uh, inspired you to to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my career and my background is software sales, right? I've, I've, mm-hmm. All the way from you know in the early years, kind of entry level sales, where this is kind of pre SDRs necessarily. Right. And you know, I spent many years as an enterprise SaaS enterprise account executive carrying a quota. 
mm-hmm. uh, year after year. I had the same business card, same job title for like five years. In today's day and age, that's like an, an, an eternity. That's, People don't that's forever, got, right? Right. Well, what are you still doing in that job? You've been there for like three years. This is what's crazy. wrong? What's wrong with you? Exactly. Nothing. I was making good money. I was, you know, it was. I was traveling. You know, I was happy and I enjoyed what I did. But yeah. you know, eventually moved into leadership roles and took over sales org, public SaaS company. Uh, for a few years, was a CRO there, and after I left uh, that company, uh, I did some consulting, essentially kind of the typical fractional CRO type stuff yeah. that, that a lot of folks do. Um, I did it, yeah. Yep, and uh, you know, I don't think that was ever going to be a long-term thing for me. It was, you know, it was good for a while, and I figured I'd go back and be an operator somewhere at a, at a software company. But the, the challenge, you, your question was what kind of spurred you to start RepView? Really two things that I saw problematic, both in my tenure, issues that we faced, as well as other smaller companies when I was helping them, was uh, not enough people are hitting quota, right? And the the other one is related to the attrition of the sales team being Mm -hmm. close to 2x of non-sales team members. But the the piece about quota attainment is interesting because uh, you see all these, these funding, these big funding rounds, and you see these companies that are massively successful and growing and adding 200 millions of VC dollars or going public. Yet you still have 45% of the team is, is hitting quota, right? Well, what, what about the other? So, and I always tell people like the, the models, and I've done it. I've been there, right? I've been in that seat. The, their, their model builds in your failure, right? As a, as, oh, yeah. a, as, a, as a salesperson, right? And, and even smaller companies, oh, we have a sales team of seven. Well, there's two people that are carrying that team, right? And, and then you cycle through a bunch of others. So, what, you or, know, or they're just, yeah. Loading up the top of the funnel and playing the odds, basically. Exactly, they're playing the right. odds with your livelihood as yep. a sales, as, as an individual contributor, as an account executive or sales team member. They're they're playing the odds with your livelihood. So, you know, not everything is as nefarious maybe as that sounds. And sometimes there's just the concept of, and I've hired plenty of people that I thought would be great that didn't work out, and I don't think it's their fault. They may have gone on to be great salespeople in other mm-hmm. areas. It's just exactly. a fit issue, and and I think you right. you start to narrow in on why is why are we why why are both sides making bad decisions, and, and in particular, you look at the interview process, and it's it's a such an important thing when you choose a, a job, you know, mm-hmm. select that next sales org, right? It's your livelihood, your resume. You don't want to have those three quick job hops, that sort of thing, right? You you want to be successful. And um, the, it's so important, yet the information flow is so imbalanced, right? right. All the information in the interview flows uh, from candidate to company. Hey, mm-hmm. HR phone screen, manager phone screen, bring, bring Ryan in for an interview. We like Ryan, okay. Peer panel, disc assessment, role play, director, VP. I, I did a, a poll today on, on interview um, length and, and Salespeople don't like long interviews. Like they don't want six stages. In any case, the point yeah. is all that information flows one way. But but as a maybe a mid market account executive, what do you get? Hey hey Ryan, we got six minutes left in the interview. Do you have any questions for us? Right. Well, maybe it's four because I had to get my Starbucks. So you have four minutes left. Do you have any <laughs> questions for us? Right. So with all this disbound, the thought behind Repview is: can, is there a platform that we could build? and deliver deep insights to sales professionals such that they can consume information to make better choices for their careers, right? So right. it's it's a very data-driven approach. And I get the question all the time. I'll, I'll, I'll preempt it from you, Andy, but it's like, oh, is this kind of like glass door or what is it? Like it's it, it, yes and no. I mean, we're very data-driven. Um, so there's no written review in any 
situation, we've created and crafted a proprietary survey. It takes about two and a half minutes. Salespeople go through, they take this little quick survey. When they're done, they're a repute user. It's anonymous. And they have access to all the data that we're collecting, right? right. And our job, my job, and, and Repu's job is to take all this data and turn it into highly consumable, visually appealing profiles of what it's really like to work in the world's most well-known sales organizations. And so that's that's what we're building as a you know on the on the user side is go to Repu. It's your ultimate career resource for understanding whether you'd be a great fit at Sales Org XYZ whether what the recruiters and hiring managers are telling you during the process is accurate, connect with other users who might have worked there to, to get a reference, uh, and a whole bunch of it. Check compensation, what do top earners make, what percent of the team hits quota, what are the top paying sales orgs, all kinds of great, valuable data. And our users just love it. And that's why we've people have maybe seen us around on LinkedIn, online. They've seen us, and we've been growing simply because users just love the data, right? But as you said, there are no written reviews. It's not a written review. And so it's a, it's a structured survey. And, and so you actually, if you go to our website, we get this a lot. Hey, I, 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 want, I looked for my sales org and I didn't see it. And usually the response is, well, it's probably been rated, but you won't see the actual published profile until it has seven or more ratings that we can aggregate together, mm-hmm. right? So there's some minimum kind of sure. uh, data threshold for us to feel comfortable that there's there's directional accuracy in, mm-hmm. in the data set, right? And we're going to roll out some stuff where there can be like a little premium kind of spotlight page for startups or small companies that aren't published. But it won't. It just it won't have even if it has a few ratings. It won't have any data until seven or more ratings. Okay. Yep. So a, a company's not paying to to have their profile on the the page on this website. Excuse me. When, when a company gets seven ratings, that company's profile is published. We don't call them. We don't ask for permission, nor do we ask for forgiveness in some cases when <laughs> it might be warranted, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. 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 No, there's no – I mean, yeah, we, we are – you know, RepView is, a, is a, essentially people in, in investing in what you'll call the two-sided marketplace where you have users on one side and you have companies or employers on the other – we're not going to charge our users. So as we continue to grow, we will charge employers. They'll be able to add videos to their pages. And you'll see if that employer is engaged with RepView because they probably have some videos and some you know other little things that they can add. Never will they be able to change the data. Never will they be able to alter the data. Never will they be able to strike down ratings or pull. You know, It's, it's just simply right. the facts are the data and the data are the facts. And you got to own it or not own it. Yeah. So, I mean, in addition to... To providing more information to candidate sales candidates to in order for them to make more informed decisions, it seems like an aspect of this is also about holding employers to account. hundred percent, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean for sure, right? We want employers to be accountable for the environment that they provide to their sales professionals, and historically, it's a uh, kind of backward-looking exercise, right? You go there, you get the job there, you got sold on all this stuff. This is really cool. I got this job. Six months later, you're like, this is nothing like what I thought it was going to be, right? Mm-hmm. We're actually trying to flip that and make that a forward-looking exercise. Whereas if that sales organization environment is not up to standards of what it should be, sales professionals are not ever even going to take that job, right? They're not going to uh, be able to... Um, 
the, the employers are not going to be able to get the talent they need because this information from crowdsource from you know the the entire sales community is out there. So it's gonna we're gonna flip it from a, a backward looking to a forward looking exercise. Yeah, I mean, I, and part of that though, I think it seems like based on the way you present the data is that if somebody has a fair number of uh, reviews and it's fairly positive, not reviews but ratings, you know, they're they're uh, what do you call the overall factor that you give someone? Yeah, we have a refuse score. Yeah, yeah, refuse score. So if the refuse score is high, but they have a fair number of uh, people have submitted ratings, let's say two hundred. If there's sort of three people that are very dissatisfied, that's not going to take more than that to sort of move the needle on their rating, right? Absolutely, right. Yeah. It's the law of large numbers, right? So, yeah. so you know, a, a Salesforce has well over four hundred ratings right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So you think about the challenge with traditional review sites is like I just pop on there and it's got 400 great ratings, but then somebody drops one in or 400 great reviews. Somebody drops one flaming review in at the very top and it's like, oh, my gosh, for ours, you know, it, it, the score changes from 91.12 to 91.11, you know, mm-hmm. on that based on that um, th- that submission. And I think that part of that's important because you do. And then and then on our in our example, you, you can start to break that down by. Uh, by role as well, so yeah. you know you can see data on our on our pages as the data gets large enough and sustainable enough. You'll see some compensation data, some other data, some quota attainment data by based on the specific role. role. Absolutely, yeah. because big orgs, right? It's, could you some people have a phenomenal experience at a huge org in, in Team A, and then some others, whether it's the manager, whether it's the process or the policies, it, it can be totally different. Yeah. So you've got seven primary factors that mm-hmm. you measure, base compensation, incentive compensation structure, professional development and training, culture and leadership, I hope everybody's taking notes, product market fit, yeah. inbound lead opportunity flow and diversity and inclusion. Yep. And so what other things would you measure? We, well, the, the, you know, the, we get feedback a lot of times, well, what, what, what about this? What about that? I think... The number one thing that so so yes that's that's great thank you those are the seven sentiment categories that we right. measure on right so things that are very important to salespeople and they're all important to salespeople all those um, and then below that we we also capture um, a data set related to the sales compensation for that particular mm-hmm. rating submission as well those set, the most common requests that we get um, outside of those seven is I want to rate my manager okay that's okay. that's that's the most common I, I was going to ask that because. Yeah, the, that's the hard thing, right, about the work experience is it's so boss-specific. It, it is, yeah. I think the, the reason that we've somewhat stayed away from that so far is, like, number one, we're not really in the business, and we don't want to be really in the business of rating people, okay? Even shaming people, right? Yeah. Especially when and, – and, look, you can go look at other sites. You look at a Glassdoor has a CEO – rating that that's a public figure essentially mm-hmm. right at the ceo level so so you're not you know could we do a ceo rating yeah maybe but that's you know neither here nor there the, the, well, i want to rate my sales manager the other thing is it just changes right it changes so often the managers shift you go on a different team the manager goes back to ic the manager's now a director it's like I, it, it just wouldn't be a wouldn't be a really good and, and the other thing that i that i we have a rating you mentioned it the sentiment score for culture and leadership a lot of times what i tell people is if you have a really good sales organization leadership team, they are not going to let a significantly subpar manager stay, you know, for very long, right? Rate, you know, 
have that reflected in the overall culture and leadership. If you're like, man, I, because people say things like, I love this sales work. I just hate my manager. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. Right? <laughs> but it's true. It. And people do. And they do. And I'm like, let's unpack that a little bit. You know, because if I really hate my manager, I probably don't like my sales work because that sales work is empowering somebody that's so detrimental to my experience to be in a position of power guiding me. Right. And so then I look at it like, yeah. There's, some, there's some inherent cracks in the overall leadership, whether they don't see it or whether they do see it and they fail to take action. Um, right. You know what I mean? So that it's one of those two things. So, uh, yeah, but it, it happens a lot though. I mean, it's, it's, it does. It does. Yeah. I mean, the a culture scores, I think is great, but as it's that experience is so specific that that was the thing I was thinking about is, okay, if you weren't going <laughs> to, if you're going to add something, what would it be? And it's, yeah. Mm-hmm boss but then yeah i don't think there's value in naming names and shaming people in this regard uh, right. that makes, makes it difficult to do but it is right i mean even from like the gallup scores about, about why people leave jobs and so on is is it's definitely about the manager you know people are firing their manager by leaving yeah it, it absolutely is one of the interesting things about the manager dynamic is that with this extreme growth particularly in tech sales that we're seeing with Hot, you know, significant venture capital rounds, companies going public, the pressure to hire so many more sales professionals and, and account executives mm-hmm. and starting with SDRs. Many, many, there's a lack of experienced leadership at the manager or director level. And what ends up happening is, hey, you know, Andy was a top rep last year. Let's, he's, a, he's now the manager, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes that works great. You know, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work great. And you're really doing a disservice to to Andy, who's now put in this position, whereas they're just trying to fill seats and 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 you don't have the infrastructure to support these management hires. And so, I think manage, management is is very very critical. Um, but yeah, to to the original point, we're not going to be naming and shaming in the near term on what yeah. we're doing. But it does raise an interesting point, though. And that was one of the other areas I was I was going to ask you about that perhaps could be valuable. Is is yeah, I think. Yeah, one of the most critical things that's happening in sales, and this is not new by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it seems more acute perhaps these days, is, yeah, the lack of support of frontline managers in sales, the lack of support of actually management up and down the chain is they're not enabled with the tools to be able to effectively coach, to effectively manage people to higher levels of performance. I mean, this is, this is you know, there's science, there's other professions, like one I often refer to in this this podcast, is you know professional soccer, where uh, you know you have to get licensed and you have to take courses on you know performance improvement and you know psychology and motivation, all these other things that we just don't bother training managers on. To your point, we just throw them in the job and say, yeah, this could be a high growth path. And not only are you going to sink or swim based on your ability to manage people, which you've never done before, but you also have to hire a ton of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally, and, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Seems like that could be an interesting score. I'm not sure what you'd call it, but just you know, how a company supports the professional development of management versus yeah. sellers. Yeah, for sure. So, so just to add on to that, right? I think the the amount of dollars flowing into professional development and training, broken down by a leadership relative to individual contributor, right? There's a huge gap. Yes. Um, who's coaching the coaches? Right, is your point, right? Like, no. right? Like, who, 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 are you coaching them on like? Did you, did, when I first became a manager, right, I kind of figured it out, 
right? <laughs> like I kind of figured, nobody taught me how to run a pipe, a good pipeline review. I'd been in some pipeline reviews. Maybe some of them were bad. Maybe some of them were good. And I kind of figured it out. Nobody taught me how to work somebody through a performance improvement plan. And it's like, well, here's the policy, right? Here's mm-hmm. the policy, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody taught me how to, you know, how to, how to effectively coach up my team on, on call coach. Like, well, I'd done a bunch of calls. So, you know, I kind of know what's a good call. And like, so there's a lot of that particularly. And I think you get an acute issue there when companies are growing so, so fast, right. And they're, and they're, you know, that, that part of the the business is behind. Right. So Hmm. I fully agree. I mean, we, I I will say our, a lot of what we do at RepView is focused on the non-manager, the individual contributor, right. That vast sea of individual. Uh, we do have um, you know ratings from sales management. It's not exceptionally broken out. Like you have a VP, is a VP or is it a you know regional director that sort of thing. But um, to, to your point, yes, that that is a huge and and then that certainly plays a huge role in the experience that the individual contributor has within their sales organization. Right? Yeah, and and the thing that's that strikes me as being so unnecessary about that situation is that. Yeah, we're always quick to blame, right? So who's to blame for sellers not hitting quota? Mm-hmm. Is it the seller or is it the manager? Mm-hmm. And we could sit here and talk about that for days probably, mm-hmm. right? A little bit of both, let's say, or yeah, equally, sure. we'll say equal shares, both. I actually probably actually really believe that's more the manager's responsibility than the seller's, but we can't blame the managers because we do nothing to, to help them be prepared to, to help the sellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I again <laughs> raised this you know, theory, you know, theoretical scenario, and on the show all the time is I think the latest figure I saw from LinkedIn State of Sales report uh, from maybe 2020 or 2019 was 15 billion dollars a year spent on sales training. Uh, I'd see another figure is 20 percent, 20 million, 20 billion. Excuse yeah. me. Of which, what maybe 10 percent is spent on training managers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd be surprised. So my thought is, well, what if we flipped the ratio? Hmm. Did something crazy. We're just what if we spent ninety percent of our sales training budget on enabling all levels of sales management, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, ten percent on sellers because the sellers, when you do surveys and the survey's done, that they actually find report that the way they're learning most about sales is from peers. Right, right. Well, I think. Yes. And, and then I think the other piece of that is if you flip that, like you suggested, and you push all that doll, push all those dollars into the management, you don't need the rep training anymore, right? Because the managers are effectively doing that portion. They're picking up the slack, right? Yep. I mean, and, and probably in a better way, not only that, but then you're also empowering that whole, instead of relying on a crutch of, I'm sure, and first of all, like, I'm, yep. not an, I'm not an expert in the sales training marketplace necessarily, certainly would expect it's highly, highly fragmented, right? And you're not going to get a consistent experience. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying there's going to be different training styles, approaches all over the place, and every company is going to be different. But the, the, the ability to push all that, all the, the resources into training the managers takes care of the other problem naturally, which, is, which, would, be, which would be incredible. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's my, my soapbox item that I, that I keep talking about. We're going we're gonna to change that. All so, right. <laughs> I'll sign you up to the the movement. You'll be part of it. I'm in. I'm in. You're in. Okay. So, a question though, we talked about you know sellers oftentimes leave jobs because of of managers, 
but um, and I think you've written about this recently is is there's also though the shiny object syndrome that sellers fall fall for and so it's like how 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 can us <laughs> I think one of the things challenges we have in the profession and b2b sales is how do we get people to be more patient because I believe that some of the challenges we have as a profession and especially in B2B tech sales is that people don't stay one place long enough to really learn what they need to learn mm-hmm. or they move on. Yeah. Um, and you give the example about yeah, working your way up to higher deal sizes, for instance, as an individual contributor, which I think is a great, a great way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we start addressing this? It's, it's, and I know it's yeah, external forces, yeah the lure of money and so on. But at some point, especially given the failure rate of, of startups <laughs> is, uh, you know, sometimes it makes sense just to stay. Yeah. It, well, the, the, you're the shiny, it's, it's really bad right now. And, and what's happening is that they're the sales professionals are getting hit up by recruiters all the time, you know, all the time. And the messaging all sounds the same, right? So, so problem number one is you, you know, Unicorn A versus Unicorn B are both saying the same things and they have the same foosball table and they have the same, you know, whatever. Aspiring Unicorn A versus Aspiring Unicorn B, yeah. Yeah, or either or, you know, or all the above. Um, And and they all have the same message, right? And so you're constantly being barraged with, you know, and and then you're thinking, oh, man, I've been doing pretty well, but I missed that number last month. And then, you know, well, maybe I'd be better over here. And, and this goes back to, I made the point early on in, in our conversation here, like I had the same job for five years. It wasn't like I became like the senior and then the senior this and then this. And it was literally like the same title, like for five years. And at the time, I didn't think, I didn't think that was a bad thing. I never even thought, oh, this is bad, right? I, I just thought yeah. like, hey, I'm doing pretty well. I could probably go get another job if I needed to, right? Because I'm a seller and I'm experienced in software and, and um, you know, the money's okay. And, and I never even thought, but it is such a different environment now. Was, that wasn't that, I mean, it's 15 years ago. So it's, it's an eons ago to, for some people, but, um, the, the sellers today are getting, they're seeing part of it. You look at social media, you look at the recruiters hitting you up. Hey, so-and-so you look at even Facebook, oh, man, all my buddies over here, has got this, he just got this boat or whatever, mm. it is, or whatever it is. And everything is in your face. And there's just this pressure, not even just in sales, but in society that we have that if you're not like you're totally hitting grand slams every month, then you're falling behind. And so, well, I'm going to go try my luck over at this other company. And yeah. I don't think you realize that hitting the reset button, even if you end up at a great sales work, hitting the reset button will cost you, right? It's, you know, in time and in, Money. ramp up and yeah. um, you know so I, I don't know if that's really an answer to that but I think it's just your your question was how do we get people to be more patient it's like I don't know but we need to get people to be more patient yeah for their own good I mean part of it is yeah if you talk to a VC you know for every 10 investments they make two turn out good four are eh, and four are nothing right so if sellers knew that was the odds right yeah, would you, would you still be rushing to drop the good thing, perhaps where you're at, mm-hmm. or the risk of something that's you know? If you get two sort of blow ups in a row, then when people start looking at you shoot for the third, yeah, it's human nature. They're going to look at you a little differently. 
Right. And we, and we are trying to help, you know, with RepView, right? I think shining a light on let's, let's try and help some people avoid some mistakes, right? Yep. Let's, let's deliver some data and insights. And it's, it's crowdsourcing, right? It's like if you knew, I, I, sometimes I like to describe it, if, if, if you had a, a really good friend that worked at software company XYZ and software company XYZ is now calling you, first thing you're going to do is reach out to your friend, right? And, and be like, hey, what's right. the deal? Right. Well, that's what we, we are that friend. Right. That's kind of how right. we look at it. Right. We're, we're that friend. Reach out to us and we'll give you that insight and that information. Right. That's because that's really the, the most fail safe way to know, like if your friend works at the company in a similar role, they'll give you the scoop, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly and make make a decision on that. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a question about a couple more questions. One about another potential point of measurement for you. Um, cause you wrote, I don't know, maybe it was today you post on LinkedIn or yesterday about, uh, you say, are we finally at a point we can stop talking about returning to normal? Yes. Uh, right. pandemic or not, it ain't happening. Yes. And what a lot of people are writing about these days is that, yeah, it's not going to return to whatever it was before, but that one of the dangers of this happening is that. People think it's somewhat inevitable. There's going to be sort of these two-tier career tracks that people go on, those who are willing to come into the office more regularly and those who aren't. So it sort of becomes like a, a career choice. I mean, just I was talking about this somebody the other day. I was like when my, my dad was coming up in his career, if you wanted to get ahead, you had to be willing to move, right? So was, even before I was born, my folks were moving around, and they moved around a couple times, well, Three or four times after I was was born, um, and so I wonder whether it's you know sort of look you know getting to this point where it's you know people have to make a choice because I can see you know human nature you got managers you know so tethered to their activity metrics you know which are these superficial measures uh, it doesn't take a stretch of imagination to think that yeah they look more favorably on people that are willing to come in more often get more face time with them. So I was just wondering whether a long way of saying maybe one of the measures at some point becomes office centricity. Yeah. Well, we, we, we are going to start tracking more of that mm -hmm. as, as we go forward. Right. And we, we kind of have some of that, but we, it's really not that hard to track. And I think uh, really, are, are you, are you going to require people to be in the office? And if so, what percent of time? And I think if right. you do that and if that percent of time is, probably more than 50%, you're going to be at a significant talent disadvantage. And, um, you know, it's like what, and so, and, and this is what I hear sometimes from people who kind of look at the, on the other side of that, which is like, well, this is how we kind of define and manage our culture through our, our office and our in-person environment. Well, it's like, what does culture mean to you? Like what, to me, I think culture, I think like empowering my people, providing them a great work environment. And, and I'm not mm -hmm. saying, I'm not saying a great physical work environment. I'm saying a great, uh, like it, it would call it emotional work environment, a great supported work environment. And, and I'm not saying going into the office is bad because it's not. And I, there's benefits to it. We, we don't have an office with RepView. We have a few people here in the Raleigh Durham area and we get together every couple of weeks for an office day, quote unquote, mm -hmm. air quotes office day. But, um, it is, you know, but, but I just think that the vast majority of, of, of employees that are in the information space, what, however broadly you want to define that, where they don't need to be, you know, in front of a, a maybe a finance terminal or something with that's high security that, that, that 
you know, they're going to want the flexibility, right? And I think a lot yeah. of those people, a lot of those people do enjoy going to the office and being with their peers, but they also, but what's more important is the flexibility to have their own schedule and, and kind of work around that. So if they're, you know, first of all, if you're doing like, Hey, we're, it's four or five days in the office, you're, you're going to be at a significant talent disadvantage. It's going to be, you know, and so I think your point was, um, you know, back in the day, you know, you got to be willing to move like, yeah, I, yes, true. Although now I, I don't think you're seeing like, it's like, Hey, the great companies are going to have their people in the office. So if you want to have an incredible career path and work those great, you got to be willing to be flexible and go in the office. I think you're probably going to see the opposite, which is over time, many of the, the, the great companies are going to embrace the definition of what flexibility means as defined by their employees. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to change. And I think, I think it's going to continue to evolve further away from where it was in the past as well as the work, as newer generations enter the workforce. Um, not ever even of knowing what we knew even five to six years ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely in agreement in terms of that. It, <laughs> especially in sales, the flexibility, the need to be in the office, just not there. But I'm not as optimistic about sort of the human nature that's going to drive those decisions. And, you know, so much about sales even today is about sort of overweening control, sense of needing control. Um, but unfortunately, I sort of, I can see, and I don't like it, but I can see this, you know, companies unnecessarily calling people back. But we'll see. I, I don't have a crystal ball. It's just my... My read things. Yeah, just to respond to that, right? I think let's let's play that out in a real world example, which sure. is I'm hiring a team of twelve entry level SDRs that may be day one out of college. Yeah. Right? So that's that's the example, right, that we're thinking about when it's like, well, you know, I gotta have I gotta be on top of them and, and I gotta, you know, make sure they're they're co- you know, yeah, certainly you can do like activity metric, you can do the, the software can handle the, the tracking mechanism of it. And then there's the coaching mechanism of it. So, so I think about it more as how are you adapting systems and processes to understand that you won't be able to be on top of them all the time, right? Whether it's Zoom type technologies or whether it's you know, you know, just with Slack, Zoom, all this other stuff. Can it replace? Um, at first glance, you think no, it can't replace being there right on top of them. Okay, well, maybe you have a couple days. Maybe it's like two days in the office. And then it's like, well, how, smart people need to be figuring out how can I empower my team, but also coach my junior team members um, effectively. And that's that's what's going to – I think that's what's going to separate the, the okay companies, the great companies from the okay companies is they're able to kind of cross that chasm and figure that stuff out. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. But I, I, I think the unknown is that people are still people and we're social animals. And that didn't change just on the basis of the pandemic. And yet, yeah, there are a lot of people who want to have you believe that it has. And so that's why I think it's, it's less certain, right? The, at least in my mind, what the end result will be. I, I, get, I don't have a crystal ball for it. But I, th- I think that, yeah, I remember back you know, it was a couple decades ago, building offices around the world, putting sellers in, 
or even hiring remote salespeople within the states is one of the things we had to screen for is you know how independently could these people work because it wasn't innate for everybody to be able to work independently and yet now we're making a huge assumption that as humans everybody sort of changed and their default mode is they know how to work independently without other people around and be satisfied by it and i, I think we're gonna find out whether that's a good assumption or not yeah so, yeah yeah we're, we're, we're on that. yep yeah. it's not gonna be easy there's gonna be challenges um yeah I, I think eventually people want to be together, but we'll find out. Yeah. Okay. Just not so, every day. Just not every day. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, and I think that's fine, right? Yeah. It's, I always sort of had that flexibility to some degree or another right. in yeah. my career being in sales. Um, but, but, also, but also you can, you know, I, I think psychologically what you're saying makes sense, but do, do you know, is it, would you say people want to be together? Okay. Yes. I agree with that. What if I said people want to be together with the other coworkers that were hired by the other managers at their, like, you know, you're, you're put together with a group of people that, you know, are, you know, so it's like, can you, my, my question or point would be, well, can you get that people want to be together outlet through something non-work related? Uh, good question. And, and the answer to that is, is we don't know, but you know, independent of what was happening uh, you know, pandemic-wise, we also know that, you know, the impact of social media, one impact of social media was, you know, people being more isolated. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's multifactorial. I just, I said, I don't have the, the crystal ball, but I just, my gut feel tells me that, yeah, more flexibility and more flexibility required just because a greater diversity of people in the workforce that, that shouldn't be penalized because they need the flexibility. Yes. Yeah. For sure. A lesson's been learned during the pandemic. For sure. So, so, so the last area I wanted to get into in the time we have remaining is another interesting post you wrote on LinkedIn is yeah, part of a poll you did, which you said, are you just complaining or is there a legit issue with your quota? And so I was wondering, what, what motivated you to write that? Uh, what motivates me to write stuff like that, and, and in particular that, is the concept of how well does a seller actually know how their quota was actually constructed, like like the mechanical makeups of their quota. Like, why is it? Why is my quota six hundred k? Right? Like what? Like like because sure, yeah, it's easy to complain. Like my quota is out of whack, right? Like my quota is too high. Well, is it? I don't know. Is it too high or? Like, and I think there was a, you know, I, I probably asked this in a, in a previous poll, which is like, how, how actually do you, do you actually know, I'd have to go dig it up. Do you actually know specifically how the number, your quota, your number was calculated? And there were definitely more no's than yeses. They don't know specifically like, so for example, is it a bottoms up quota? Is it a top down quota? Is it a, you know, is it, is it a, you know, a, a territory kind of makeup quota, you know, and. And so, so it's kind of like, are you just complaining? Like, well, everybody can complain. It's your right. It's everybody's right to complain. But let's let's unpeel the onion just a little bit and say, like, well, why why do you think your quota is bad? Is it, if it's just because you never hit it, that doesn't mean the quota is wrong. That just means you never hit it. Um, you know. So I want to unpack and understand how much visibility is there into the actual construction of quotas, and and sales orgs should should be real clear on that. I don't think they are. All right. Let me phrase the question or pose the question to you differently. Yeah. So 
by your own data, their own repu data, you know, a minority of B2B sellers are hitting their quota based on the ratings that you're getting. And this is not just your data. It's been going on for forever, as far as sure. I can tell. But seemingly has, has gotten more pronounced over the last 10 years, at least based on like reports from CSO Insights when they were doing their reports and so on. Mm-hmm. You also recently wrote that 31 of an approximately 1,000 sales teams reporting on RepView had only 31, had 75% or more of their team at quota, which is 3.1%. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I look at the whole quota issue a little differently, which is what's the purpose of quota? Why do we need it? You know, when so few people are making quota, hasn't it lost its value? Don't we need another way to measure performance in sales for sellers? I mean, there's this famous economic law called Goodhart's Law that says when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure, Yeah, which is, I mean, it, yeah. which is what we've done with quota. We've turned it into a, a target and people optimize the process and it no longer accurately reflects performance, especially when quotas are arbitrarily set. So why do we still have quota? And that's not to put you on the spot. I'm just sort of, you know, saying that more in general. Well, set, setting even setting quota aside, what, what define like I like to back it up a little bit like what defines success in a role like what how do you like it and you always want to know like because mm-hmm. we think about even in my current job now at RepView you know we're thinking hey we're going to hire customer success person here we just posted a role and it's like all right well one of the first things I talk about with another member of my team that's that's going to be running point on that is like well what in a year what what will we say what what metric or what thing will we look at where we can say this person was really successful like, what have they done? You know what I mean? Like, is it retention of customers? Is it, you know, is it, you know, some other metric? Is it some, like SAT scores or, you know, your NPS or whatever you want to call it? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. So I think, I think particularly in a, in a sales role, there's, there always will have to be some kind of metric, right? I think sure. what you're, what you're getting at is, are, are we just like, it's, it's like the goalpost is so far out there right now for so many people. Is it just wrong? Like the whole thing. And I, I did, I don't know, there, there's a blog post that I wrote about four or five months ago that says missing quota, like as a, as a you know, an epidemic or whatever. And, and why is that? And I think a lot of it goes down to, goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is the, 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 the models starting from the CFO, CEO, and to some degree CRO too, that build in like, hey, we got these investors and we got an outside number, we got an inside number, then I got my manager number, and then I got my VP number. We've got these four or five numbers, right? And it's like, well, ultimately, if we hit that one number at the very top, which might be visible outside of this boardroom to or, or outside of this management meeting, maybe to investors, like we hit that one number, but then each level you go down lower you're a little further away, you're a little further away, and you're a little further away. And when you get to the individual contributor, how far away are you? You're as far away as 55% of the people miss quota, 45% of the people hit quota. And guess what? The number at the very top, it was hit. And so you're basically, and this is what I was saying earlier, you're going, and so then, well, how do you, how do you reset that, right? And it's just been ingrained so long. And I've been part of it at the individual level, at the director level, and at the CRO level. I've seen it all. Right. And, and it's one of the things that I just, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answers on how to change that necessarily because it's it's a big 
it's just the way that things are done. And it, you know, you know, there's a lot of big dollars involved in all this, as you know. Yeah, but you, you said it's the way things are done, which is if that was the case, <clears throat> we would never ever sell anything, right? Because every time we talk to a customer, they'd be, well, that's the way we're, that's the way we're doing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we have a very good reason to change, which is it's meaningless at this point right. in time. When so few people are meeting it, it's become meaningless. Yeah. And so I think there are alternatives. Uh, you know, one is a true measure of sales productivity. You know, that we measure productivity in sales the way the rest of the world measures it, not in quantity of activities, but in how much revenue per hour of selling time are you generating? Now, if you could measure that, which I've done before in managing sales teams, then well, that's then you could set up. Well, how can we help this person become more productive in the time when they're actually selling? And you could set productivity goals, or you could set a rate of improvement on productivity goals. And I really believe that the future is we need to look at a basket of measures instead of just one. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I like that, although the problem is at some level that is disjointed with that top number, which might not, you know, which, which is just the, the top, the one top line, right. you know, there, there's some, so that, that's going to require some work to, to, to kind of conjoin the levels right. from board to the rep that has the productivity per hour or however you want to look at that. Right. I mean, I would suspect that the data that you have is somewhat skewed by the fact that it's primarily tech companies, right? Um, on rep view in that oftentimes investor funded that have this particular broken dynamic with you know, top down over optimistic goals being given to sellers um, but I think that one of the things that's sort of ironic about, about this is that when we create the situation where so few people as a percentage experience success we lose the opportunity to encourage and motivate them because the way people are motivated is through success. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the, you know, the interesting thing about most of our data is tech. We have, you know, we're, we're not exclusive, but most of it is. And, and the other thing is the amount of dollars, right? A top performing tech salesperson, as you know, there is a lot of money that they can earn on an annual sure. basis. And so it, it brings, it attracts, it, it allows, it, it enables companies to hire 100 reps knowing that, hey, 30 of them are going to do really, really well. 30 of them are going to eh, just do okay. And 40 of them are really not going to do anything at all because the dollars. Are, and so it's a, there, there's, there is the concept of a distribution, right? The distribution of the, the payout, you know, you know, across the org as well, right? So is it a, maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should do instead of a 50-50, maybe it should be a 65-35 or, you know, there, there's other ways to look at it. I'm not, I'm not advocating necessarily for any of them right now, but you, to your point, there are, you know, th- th- there are there are levers that can certainly be pulled. Right. Um, okay. Well, Ryan. Well, thank you very much for joining me. This was great. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having so, me. If people want to uh, learn more about RepView, yeah, how should they do that? Or connect uh, 
We are very, well, we're very easy to find. We're all over LinkedIn, uh, RepView, R-E-P-V-U-E, although we actually do also own R-E-P-V-I-E-W. So if you get confused and type that in, you'll likely end up at the right place. Um, uh, we're not a French company. Uh, we just like the six letter uh, URL. Uh, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn as well. My team, yep. our team is easy to find on LinkedIn. Uh, just go to repview.com, take two minutes, submit a rating of any sales org, any B2B sales org where you've worked, and then you can access all of the data that we have, all the compensation data, who's making what, all that kind of stuff. And I think as a, if you're a sales professional listening to this, you'll love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. You should definitely should check it out. Uh, Brian, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's great. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Ryan Walsh, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.